Good morning, and thank you for joining us today here at Cato. Uh, I'm Norbert Michel, the director of the Cato Institute's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. Today, we welcome Travis Hill. He is the FDIC vice chairman. Uh, Travis has been in that role at the FDIC since January of 2023. He was actually working at the FDIC prior to being in that role from 2018 to 2022. He was both deputy to chairman for policy and before that senior advisor to the chairman. Uh, prior to that, uh, he was working on Capitol Hill. He was a senior, senior counsel in the US Senate Banking Committee. That's actually where I met Travis. Um, in that role, he, he participated in many, many different pieces of legislation, both writing and researching and negotiating. And we are today going to have Travis here to provide a short policy speech. And then he and I are going to have a brief discussion based partly on some of the audience questions that we've already received. So please help me in welcoming Travis Hill. Thank you, Norbert, for, uh, for the introduction. Uh, it's, it's great to be here, and, and thank you to the Cato Institute for, for hosting me today. Um, it's been about six months since the high-profile failure of Silicon Valley Bank and the brief banking turmoil that followed. Since then, banking conditions have stabilized but remained somewhat fragile. In the second quarter, deposits decreased for a fifth consecutive quarter, but outflows have moderated following record-setting declines earlier this year. Net interest margin declined for a second straight quarter, but by less than expected, as banks continue to pay more for deposits and competition for funding remains strong. For example, money market fund assets continue to set all-time highs at the same time that total bank deposits continue to fall, further pressuring deposit rates. Overall, industry conditions are encouraging, but significant uncertainty remains. High rates may persist and continue to pressure the industry and if rates do fall, the cause might be that an economic downturn, along with deteriorating credit quality, has finally arrived. Meanwhile, the banking agencies are in the midst of an aggressive regulatory agenda, including both a number of items that were under consideration before March and a number of consideration in response to March. While I think that some response to the bank failures is warranted, I worry that an overreaction is underway and that we are moving too quickly to impose a long list of new rules and expectations at a time when conditions remain precarious. Today, I'm going to share a few thoughts on several of the issues on our agenda. Overall, I think that any policies we, we adopt should be balanced, thoughtful, and targeted, and that we should be mindful of both the aggregate impact of all the changes and the current economic environment. To start, in late July, the banking agencies approved a proposal to substantially revise the capital requirements for large banks, which I view as two proposals in one. One implemented the 2017 International Basel Endgame Agreement, which would substantially revamp how large banks calculate risk-weighted assets. And the second, completely unrelated to the first, undoes almost all of the tailoring of the capital framework for large banks. With respect to the Basel standards, our capital rules for our largest banks are already meaningfully more conservative than those in other developed jurisdictions. We have already gold-plated the underlying Basel standard that exists today. The proposal would further gold-plate the new Basel standard in a number of ways, 
at the same time that European jurisdictions appear to be deviating in the opposite direction. The result will be some combination of higher prices and less availability of products and services. And I hope there is openness to revisiting some of these choices as the process progresses. A month later, in late August, the FDIC board approved several items related to large bank resolution. One of the proposals would impose a long-term debt requirement on large regional banks, which I generally support. The objective is to ensure that if a large bank fails, there is a pool of resources that will always be available to absorb losses in front of the deposit insurance fund and the depositor class, which would significantly re reduce both the cost that is socialized across the industry and the tail risk to taxpayers. There were, several as there were several aspects of the proposal that I would have addressed differently, but I still think the proposal was worth issuing to receive comments, and my hope is that once we receive and review comments, there will be some willingness to seek consensus among board members at all the agencies. The presence of long-term debt would be helpful regardless of how a bank is resolved and regardless of the degree and extent of resolution planning. The FDIC also proposed substantial changes to the IDI resolution planning rule. While resolution plans can provide the FDIC with some useful information and certain aspects of the proposed changes might be helpful, I think the proposal could have better focused on key areas of resolution planning such as maximizing the likelihood of a weekend sale in the event of a regional bank failure. Looking ahead, one topic that has been under consideration at the FDIC for the past couple years is bank merger policy. If we reopen merger policy, I encourage regulators to keep a few principles in mind. First, the U.S. banking sector and financial services industry more broadly are highly competitive. While the total number of banks in the U.S. has shrunk considerably in recent decades, the U.S. still has more depository institutions than anywhere in the world, and U.S. banks also compete with thousands of other institutions that perform bank-like functions, including credit unions, fintechs, money market funds, retailers, technology companies, independent mortgage companies, private credit, and a range of other non-bank financial companies. Banks and non-banks are also no longer bound by geographical limits, as any bank with a website or a phone app can offer products to virtually any customer with a computer or a smartphone. While not all banks compete nationwide, all banks in effect compete with those who do. This is a notable contrast from when the bank merger framework was, was put in place decades ago, when banking was generally a much more local business and banks were heavily restricted in their ability to operate in different geographies. To the extent that regulators are concerned about consolidation, rather, rather than make the merger process more difficult, we should instead try to address some of the underlying causes of consolidation, which includes the ever-rising cost of compliance, the steep challenges associated with technology adoption, and the dramatic decline in de novo activity since the 2008 financial crisis. Additionally, the current merger application process is, in many cases, too long and too opaque. I appreciate that the FDIC has an important role to play in reviewing mergers under the Bank Merger Act, and that some applications present challenging complexities that take time to work through. But it is in no one's interest when banks, after publicly announcing a merger, spend months waiting for initial feedback and sometimes much longer bef before receiving a final decision, while employees and stakeholders wait in limbo. The FDIC began to make improvements to the process under Chairman McWilliams, but there is still much more work to do, and I fear we have been moving backwards since her departure. We should also be mindful that it is helpful for banks that are struggling in this rate environment to seek partners, 
and it is much, much better for a struggling institution to be purchased on an open bank basis rather than bought from the FDIC out of receivership. One example of this was the announced merger between, between PacWest and Bank of California, and sin, since then we've seen more potential interest in the creative reverse merger structure those institutions utilized. With an industry adjusting to high rates and possible credit problems around the corner, this feels like a bad time for a crusade against mergers. Finally, policymakers have talked about a desire for more competition, but in the banking context, it's worth considering to what end. A primary way banks compete is on price by offering higher yields on deposits and lower rates on loans. This is good for consumers who can earn more on savings and pay less to borrow. But one way for a bank to get on an FDIC watch list is by paying too much on deposits compared to how much it earns on loans. Banks also compete on loan terms by offering longer maturities, less covenants, and other features that can make regulators queasy. Another way banks compete is through innovation and efficiency, which over the long term can involve things like transitioning away from higher cost branches and toward lower cost websites and engaging in third party partnerships or banking as a service. Yet these are all types of activities that bank regulators currently view skeptically. Of course, capitalism is built on competition and competition has many benefits, but it appears that regulators want a merger policy that encourages more competition yet dislike many of the things, the things banks do when faced with stiffer competition. Another policy item under consideration is potential changes, changes to liquidity rules for large banks, particularly the liquidity coverage ratio. Following the 2008 financial crisis, when the primary liquidity sources that banks relied on became unavailable, the banking agencies implemented the LCR based on the rationale that large banks needed to hold a stockpile of high-quality liquid assets that could be sold or monetized in times of stress. In 2023, we experienced a very different stress environment than that of 2008, in which banks had large pools of HQLA but were limited in their ability to sell these securities, in part because selling would have forced banks to realize losses on securities that had lost value. Since the bank failures in March, when the FDIC has looked at banks under stress, the liquidity metric to which we have paid the closest attention is a comparison of a bank's total cash plus borrowing capacity at the Federal Home Loan Banks and the Federal Reserve to its total uninsured deposits. In other words, the question was not whether banks had sufficient liquid assets to, to survive a 30-day stress period based on a sophisticated formula with lots of assumptions looking at the entire balance sheet it was a much narrower question of whether banks had enough cash or quick access to cash to survive a near instant exodus of all their uninsured deposits similar to the SVB experience. This liquidity metric bears some resemblance to Mervyn King's pawnbroker for all seasons proposal from several years ago. Under King's proposal, the discounted collateral value of a bank's, of a bank's assets prepositioned at the central bank would be required to exceed its short-term liabilities. In other words, banks would always need to have sufficient access to cash to satisfy a mass exodus of runnable liabilities. While replacing the existing liquidity rules with such a proposal would be a significant leap today, it is worth considering how our liquidity rules could better reflect how supervisors on the ground view banks' liquidity 
and how banks respond to liquidity needs under duress. The 2023 experience raises questions at the core of what our liquidity rules are designed to achieve. A challenge with any liquidity regime is that liquidity available today may not be available under stress. The only liquidity source that will always be available in any environment is the central bank, because only the central bank has unlimited capacity to manuf manufacture liquidity at any time. However, in the U.S., a bank in deteriorating condition can lose access to primary credit at the Federal Reserve's discount window, as occurred with First Republic in April. Meanwhile, a banking panic always has the potential to defy our peacetime assumptions about how liabilities will behave. Even core retail insured deposits may withdraw from a bank if customers lose confidence. I understand the impulse to reconsider aspects of our liquidity rules in light of lessons learned, but if we do, we should do so holistically. For example, if we are going to change outflow assumptions for uninsured deposits, to reflect the possibility that they may run more quickly than previously expected, we should also consider that in such an event, banks are unlikely to fire sell their stockpile of HQLA in a, matter, in a matter of hours, and instead will more likely pledge all assets available to borrow against. Overall, I think we should be hesitant to respond to our experience last spring or any period of stress by First, modifying outflow assumptions only for types of liabilities that move faster than expected. Second, narrowing the definition of HQLA only for types of assets that proved harder to sell than expected. And or third, layering on top of the existing liquidity rules a new liquidity metric to reflect the unique characteristics of the most recent stress event. Instead, I encourage regulators to think holistically about reforms that reflect how banks actually behave in times of stress and are durable for the full spectrum of possible stress events. On a related note, while some uninsured deposits at risk of loss in the event of failure moved extremely quickly this spring, perhaps the stickiest of deposits proved to be brokered certificates of deposit. As an example, Silvergate Bank had no broker deposits prior to the fall of 2022, but as the bank began experiencing outflows of crypto-related deposits, it replaced the departing deposits with brokered CDs. By the time the bank announced plans to self-liquidate in March, more than 98% of the bank's non-broker deposits had run off, while its brokered CDs all remain through maturity, and some remain on the balance sheet even now. From the FDIC's perspective, the main downsides to brokered CDs are that they are costly for the bank and have no value in resolution. The flip side is that because the depositors have no relationship with the bank, earn high rates, are fully insured, and generally cannot withdraw before maturity, the deposits are extremely sticky and the depositors are indifferent to whether the bank has a future or not. Far from, be far from being hot money, these deposits are so cold they are virtually frozen in place. On the supervisory front, supervisors have been re-examining several issues following the failures earlier this year, including interest rate risk, concentrations of uninsured deposits, liquidity risk management, contingency funding, and timely remediation of supervisory criticisms. I generally agree these issues warrant attention, but we should do so with humility and remember that examiners do not and should not manage banks or determine business strategies and that bank supervision cannot and should not prevent all bank failures. On the issue of timely remediation, the failure of SVB and Signature Bank both illustrate the point. 
Over the course of several examination cycles, supervisors identified substantial weaknesses in the risk management programs at both banks, but the banks were given long runways and ultimately failed to remediate the under underlying issues. I agree that is unacceptable. But as we consider ways to ensure timely remediation of supervisory issues, supervisors also need to consider ways to first, complete exams and communicate findings in a more timely way, and second, better prioritize core safety and soundness risks. As an example of the former, the FDIC's report on the supervision of signature details the extensive delays the FDIC experienced in completing exams and communicating exam findings to the bank. As an example of the latter, SVB had a long list of supervisory criticisms, but most were on topics unrelated to the core financial condition of the bank. I think these issues all need to be addressed collectively, prioritizing the key issues that are fundamental to safety and soundness and ensuring they are properly processed, communicated, escalated, and remediated in a timely way. My fear is that instead we may escalate every supervisory criticism with the result that core safety and soundness issues, in some cases, still find themselves at the back of the line. Speaking of the need to prioritize, another issue on the agency's agenda is climate change. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, there have already been 23 weather or climate events with damage exceeding $1 billion in the U.S. in 2023, the largest number on record surpassing the previous record of 22 set in 2020. In my years at the FDIC, I have attended dozens of meetings discussing supervisory issues at particular banks, including healthy banks and unhealthy banks, banks on the verge of failure and banks very far from failure, banks on the coasts and banks far from the coasts, and many in between. Yet never once have I ever heard a bank supervisor or FDIC staff member mention a climate event as causing stress at a particular bank. This despite year after year of record or near record setting damage attributable to climate events. Banks have dealt with natural disasters and extreme weather events for centuries. In the US, there is no record of banks ever failing because of climate related events, and it has been extremely rare for banks to suffer meaningful losses. Extreme climate events are tragedies for local communities and for bankers who live in and support those communities, but financially, banks often benefit in the aftermath. As demand for loans grows, recovery funds flow into the, economy, into the community, and economic activity rebounds. In 2022, the FDIC proposed principles for managing climate-related risks and discussed plans to issue further guidance in the future. The proposed principles lay out a long list of steps the FDIC would expect institutions to take to manage climate risks, which in total would have the effect of significantly elevating the relative importance of climate risks in many aspects of a bank's decision making. To the extent the principles are meaningful and more than a check the box compliance burden, the inevitable result will be that banks offer less credit or, or, or charge more for credit to, consumer, to consumers and businesses in, com in communities that are most vulnerable to climate events, including those in low and moderate income areas. As a general matter, when bank regulators declare something a safety and soundness concern, the expected result should be that banks will do less of it or charge more for it. When a natural disaster or extreme weather event occurs in the U.S., the FDIC always issues guidance promising flexibility to enable banks to support their communities. What the FDIC does not do is tell banks to retrench out of concerns for their safety 
and soundness. The proposed principles flip this idea on its head. Rather than viewing banks as a source of strength to serve communities most vulnerable to climate change, the agencies instead are telling banks to worry about themselves. Of course, past performance is no guarantee of future results, and the risk that a climate event or climate-related risk could someday result in bank failures is not zero. But today, that risk is much lower than many other, than many other risks that have gotten much less attention over the past couple years, including, as an example, prior to March, the impact of rising rates. I'll conclude with two final points. First, I think the agencies are trying to do too much all at the same time, both with respect to the aggregate number of things on our agenda and with respect to individual agenda items trying to solve too much at once. There needs to be more prioritization, more appreciation of the aggregate costs of doing all this simultaneously, and more consideration of the uncertain economic environment. And what I described today is far from an exhaustive list of all items under consideration at the banking agencies, which is in addition to the robust agendas at other financial regulators, such as the Securities and Exchange Commission and Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And second, undoing the tailoring of our rules would be a mistake. We benefit from having a financial system with banks of many different sizes and business models. As institutions shrink in size and complexity, the relative benefits of more burdensome rules diminish as banks' relative systemic importance declines and resolution options broaden, while the relative costs of complying with rules increase as banks have less economies of scale. Eliminating rules and standards that differentiate among types of firms will ultimately lead to a reduction in differentiation among firms themselves, incentivizing further consolidation and homogeneity in its place. Thank you for your time, and with that, I'm happy to take questions. Thank you, Charles. Just two really quick housekeeping items that I always forget. Uh, if the ins members of our audience here, if you could please ensure that your cell phones are on silent or off, that would be great. And uh, for those following online, it, you could use hashtag CatoEcon. I always forget to do that. Oh, so thanks, Travis. Um, I want to start, I want us to start kind of where you started. I want to go to this, as you've, you've mentioned, uh, we have a very aggressive regulatory agenda right now. And you're concerned that there's possibly an overreaction. And uh, I wanted to see if we could go a little bit deeper there, you know, sort of like talk about maybe a little bit about what's driving that. And when you talk about individual pieces of that, you know, what might be driving those or what might be the problem there? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so, so I think part of the, you know, part of the issue is the agencies had, a, had an aggressive agenda even before the failures in March. So some things I think got a little bit delayed as a result of, everyone trying to react to the, to the events of March. So now the things that were on the agenda before March are all sort of coming up. And at the same time, there's a desire to, you know, kind of make the most of the moment and put in place a lot of, a lot of reactions to, to the things that happened in March. Um, and I think, I think part of the problem is, I think there's just sort of a lack of appreciation of the challenges with trying to do all of these things all at the same time. 
And so I listed some of the some of the key things that are on our agenda, but there's there's a lot of other things that are also either coming or under consideration. You know, finalizing the Community Reinvestment Act is is probably one of the most ambitious rulemakings that that the banking agencies are considering. Um, but there's you know there's there's a whole bunch of other things, and I think when I look at it, especially when we think about reactions to what happened in March, you know, it, it feels to me like we don't really know if we're sort of through this quote cycle, mm -hmm. you know, and so I feel like there's a there's a compelling case to at least try to get through the rate cycle and sort of see where we are when the dust settles and then we can kind of take stock of what all the lessons learned are and sort of decide which of the policy proposals are most worthwhile to pursue mm -hmm. um, rather than sort of leaping into, you know, leaping into everything now. So in some of that, so some of the fear of the of failure maybe is what's driving some of that new stuff. But as you point out, there was already a lot of stuff on there. So, so it's not that there's anything sort of hyper-political going on, really. It's just there's a lot, there was already a lot going on, and now the March failure sort of added to that. That's basically I think it. that's fair. Yeah, okay. Um, so on that part, uh, as my friend at Brookings, Aaron Klein, always likes to point out, uh, you know, a, a, a banking system where there are zero failures is not a sign of a healthy banking system. Um, so some of this obviously is, as we pointed out, is, is in response to the March failures. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of times we, a lot of people, not just regulators, take the wrong lessons from those failures. Um, and want even stricter regulations, even more regulations, and maybe that's not the right way to do that. Some people even call for making the, the banking sector sort of a public utility sector uh, so that everything is, even the profit is strictly regulated, nobody ever fails, it's just there. Um, should we look at this, is, is Aaron wrong? You know, should we, should we have regulations and regulators based, the, that are basing their decisions on, on a goal of zero failures? Yeah, I mean, no, I, I mean, I, I agree with we'll with put Aaron, Aaron on and, the spot. Yeah, <laughs> um, and I think you know, I think I, I, I kind of you know indicated in the remarks. Um, you know, I think it's I think it's worth I think it's worth staying up front that you know bank failures are are a painful thing, um, and I think you know we have a you know a a massive apparatus to try to minimize the risk of bank failures, and I think the the policy goal of trying to minimize bank failures is is a is a very worthwhile one, um, but I think we also need to be realistic about what bank supervision and bank regulation can, should, and does do. Um, and so, you know, part of it is when we think about our our regulatory framework. You know, the goal if the goal is going to be zero failures, then to your point, you're basically just going to turn banks into utilities, and that's going to have a massive impact on how our how our economy works and, and how our financial system works, and it's probably not a real—it's probably not a realistic end goal because what's just going to happen is all the things that banks used to do now other companies that are not banks are going to do, mm -hmm. and eventually you're just going to have the same problems just somewhere you know, else. Somewhere else, exactly. Right. Um, but I think the other—the other piece of it too is you know as we think of as we think of our reactions to the bank failures, you know on the one hand. You know the world is always changing, and it's important to, you know, process things that happen and incorporate lessons learned. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you know, I think we should be careful about every time a bank fails, sort of saying what went wrong, how do we make sure that never happens again? 
because otherwise, you know, you're going to create a culture where, you know, supervisors are just constantly lurching from thing to thing to thing, mm -hmm. when in reality, it's, you know, it's just not feasible for examiners to always be on top of every single thing all the time. Yeah. And, and people make mistakes. Right. I mean, on both sides. So right. that's, um, that, that's, I think that's fair. I think that's a better way of looking at it, honestly. But um, I want to get a little bit into some of the weeds on the regulations, just, just a touch. Um, a lot of what we do to regulate banks, as you know, uh, consists of capital regulation and liquidity regulation. And one of these is directly tied to what we just started talking about with the March stuff. Um, one big piece of this is the, the infamous, now infamous S2155, as you're very familiar with, the Senate bill um, that gave us tailoring. Uh, for those in the audience not super familiar with that, that's tailoring the special regulations that the Federal Reserve put on the largest banks. And I think a good place to start with this really is just say, can you help us put this to bed once and for all? You know, was that, was that tailoring bill a primary cause of what happened in March? So I don't think so. And I think most of the conversation around it is, is, is more of a distraction than, than helpful. Um, you know, I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of different ways of trying to look at it. Um, you know, in the, in the Federal Reserve's report on SVB, one of the things that they focused on was the fact that SVB had above $10 billion in foreign exposures, which would have, you know, which would have pushed them up into a higher, you know, essentially, this is pre-tailoring, a higher, a higher class of regulation, which essentially would have meant they would have been subject to the full LCR rather than reduced LCR, and, um, and they would have been subject to the AOCI in, in capital, which means they would have had to account for unrealized losses on their available for sale portfolio. Um, and I guess the way I look at it is, number one, if SVB had known that crossing that $10 billion threshold would have meant this whole new class of rules, it seems extremely unlikely that they would have done that, given that that was such a small part of their, of their business. But even if they had, I, I still think those rules are, wouldn't have really made that big of a difference. You know, the, the whole point of the LCR is to require banks to hold essentially treasuries and agency securities, which is what got SVB in trouble in the right, first place. Right. And there's no distinction in the LCR over maturities or anything like that. So, you know, whether they had a shortfall or not, it seems to me like the most likely way they would have remedied the shortfall was by doing the exact same thing that got them in trouble. Yeah. And then on the, on the AOCI question, you know, SVB, I think it was like 85% of their securities were in held to maturity. So even if they had capital on the, on the available for sale, you know, the vast majority of the securities would not have, would not have been subject to the, to the capital treatment anyway. Right. And arguably, if they, you know, they did that even without the capital yeah. incentive. Right. So it's possible they would have had even more, you know, even more in held to maturity, mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if they had been subject to that capital treatment. So, you know, so it seems to me like, again, there are a lot of kind of more fundamental questions that, that really were unaffected by, by anything that was done in the tailoring rule. Another thing that was in the, in the Fed's SVB report, which, you know, which I have never thought of as part of 2155, but, you know, they talk a lot about which group for examination purposes right. SVB was in. Um, and again, that's something that I didn't even know about. And I was, you know, 
involved in all the in all the tailoring rules. So you know, I think there's probably some debate whether that was, you know, whether that was related to 2155 or that was just sort of internal mm -hmm. internal Fed things. Um, but regardless of all that, I mean, the way that I look at it is the types of problems that SVB had would have been the types of problems that you would want examiners to be on top of, whether it's a $200 billion bank, a $100 billion bank, a $40 billion bank. And so to me, that is much less a sort of which group is it in right, and right. much more of a whatever group is looking at them, what should they be doing? Yeah, yeah. So again, I think there's, you know, I think there's a lot of questions this raises that are worth thinking about, but I, you know, I don't think that consequences of the tailoring legislation really had really would have had anything to do with the ultimate outcome. Yeah. And, and I, we won't make this all about the fed, but they had an enormous amount of discretion. And as you point out, I have to agree there. That's, that's something that everybody should have been looking at anyway. Um, and I'll just point out that wasn't, that didn't happen system wide. So uh, anyway, we'll leave that, leaving that aside for a sec. So, um, you, and you also alluded to a couple more things I want to hit on the tailoring piece. You also alluded to, you know, maybe we need to think about how we're doing it and, and, and do some more tailoring in a better way. Cause I think it, it has sort of worked in general more broadly. Right. I mean, there's, there's at least a case that could be made for that. Um, and it, it seems like now, though, we're going in the opposite direction of what the European banking regulators are doing. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, so I guess I'd maybe take that in two pieces. I mean, I think for sure there, is, there seems to be a movement to basically undo tailoring and to try to, try to align standards for, for all banks above $100 billion, where, you know, instead of this sort of like more gradual – more gradual tailoring where as you get larger, you know, additional standards and expectations co come in a more gradual way. It's more of a hundred billion is like the line of demarcation and either you're above it and you're a big bank and you're subject to, to almost everything or you're below it and you're not. Um, and so, you know, the, we saw that in the, in the Basel endgame proposal, which, which basically undoes almost all of the tailoring or what if it's finalized as proposed, of the of the capital standards, the long-term debt proposal has no differentiation between categories two, three, and four. Um, and you know, some of the discussion around LCR seems to be considering the possibility of you know align you know mm -hmm. bringing that down and potentially aligning where everyone's subject to the same standards. Um, and as I said, I mean, I you know, I think from my perspective, I think that would be a mistake um, because if you do that, you're basically incentivizing all those banks to you know, to consolidate, to grow, and to behave all the same way. Um, whereas our system now, you know, it it attempts to provide for this diverse banking system where, you know, there's, you know, where banks can make justifications to be sort of anywhere along the, you know, along the, the spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, and then on the second point on, um, on European deviations, you know, I think that's I think that's more specific on the on the Basel standard itself, where in the U.S. the Basel proposal deviates from Basel in a bunch of ways that are more conservative than Basel, right. essentially gold plating a whole bunch of different things. And the European proposals have deviated from Basel in several ways, but you know, in the opposite yeah, direction. Yeah. And so, you know, a couple of those areas are the requirement for for corporate 
for corporate exposures to be listed on a, a national exchange to get more favorable capital treatment. So, you know, in the U.S., in order to get the more favorable capital treatment, and this is part of the Basel standard, mm -hmm. you would have to both be investment grade and be listed on an exchange. And in Europe, they're considering only having that investment grade piece. Um, and then there are a couple of other, a couple of other things. I don't know if we want to, how much detail you want to get into, but <laughs> maybe maybe not that much. But no, but we're, but that's I mean that's a good part. That's a good entry into, into that. It's a good summary of, of some of that stuff, I think. And I want to come back to the homogeneity and, and kind of end game in a really weird way, though. I want to talk about something else in the tailoring bill that very few people talk about. Um, there was also something in there, again, as you know, you're intimately familiar with, there's a community bank leverage ratio. So if you were a smaller bank, um, there was a threshold, and you could get out of the Basel stuff, the capital rules, and go to a sort of a flatter or simple or simpler uh, capital ratio. Um, has that worked out? What do you think there? Like we, we, we know we, we don't hear a lot about the take up and, yeah. and whether it was a good idea and you know all we hear about the tailoring bill is the big banks. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I I think overall it's been it's been successful. I mean, the the motivation behind it was when after the financial crisis, when the original Basel three standards were were put in place, it applied to all banks throughout the industry, and it was a you know it was a very complex. Um, capital calculation and reporting burden on on banks and so there was a you know the motivation but behind the cblr provision was for banks that we know are well capitalized who have you know above a certain higher amount of capital based on a simple a simple measure of capital we would exempt them from having to do all of the the risk weighting calculations um and so i think the i think the take-up has overall been pretty good um I believe about 80% of banks are eligible for it, and about half of the banks who are eligible have have opted in and elected to use it. Um, so, you know, it's like I think around 1,800 banks or something have or have adopted it. Um, so, I think it's I think it's been successful. I mean, I you know, just being candid, I think when we first when we first put it in place, I think the expectation was that the uptake would have been higher, um, and you know, it, there's probably some you know, there's probably at some point it would probably be worthwhile for us to, you know, do some sort of RFI or, you know, mm -hmm. survey or something to get a better understanding of, of why certain banks chose to use it and didn't use it. Um, but I think general, the general principle of sort of like, you know, banks that are well capitalized based on a simple measure of capital, especially for, for smaller banks, mm -hmm. being able to be exempt from certain of the more burdensome requirements, you know, I think there's a, I think there's a compelling rationale behind that. Mm -hmm. And, and historically, the larger banks, at least since we started with Basel, the, the larger banks would say, eh, no, no, I don't really want to do that. Um, they, they like the risk-weighted system, yeah. right? Yeah. But is, is this, could this at least superficially be a case for, you know, maybe we need to consider raising that threshold? Maybe we need to expand that flatter, simpler system? Um, you know, and, and in, within that same line, could that be a way to have a less homogenous system, at least at the at the larger end? Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a very interesting concept. Um, it's something that I know people you know people at the FDIC have have given some thought to over the years. Mm -hmm. um, I think as a from a process standpoint, you know, I think there would be questions about whether you know whether the agencies could do that without 
without Congress mm -hmm. acting because of the, the Collins of the, Amendment. Right. Um, but I think from a, from a policy perspective, especially, you know, the way the community bank leverage ratio is, is established, you know, there are, in addition to the size requirements, there are other eligibility requirements. And so I think to the extent that there are concerns about, you know, let's say you want to consider raising it from 10 billion to 50 billion, you know, to the extent that you're concerned that there are certain banks in that range that have, you know, more complex businesses that where, mm -hmm. you know, you might want at least some risk weighting, potentially you could address that through the through the eligibility requirements. Um, so anyway, I think so I think there's a compelling uh, case to consider something like that. Yeah, at least worth talking about more. Yeah. Than I think that's uh, yes, we agree. Uh, shocker. Um, so um, I think that. Uh, I think I think right now this is just my two cents, but I think right now a lot of the pushback that we see from the larger banks with the Basel End game stuff, you know, maybe maybe that um, maybe it is a it, maybe it is a, a good point to to have those guys start to talk about that a little bit more, at least think about that a little bit more. The, the larger guys, the larger banks. So, um, okay, uh, one of our audience questions that I want to get to, um, actually. You know what? Hold on one sec. Before I do that, I want to I want to talk a little bit more about the liquidity stuff, because you said something really interesting there, and this is technically part of the end game stuff as well. Um, we always talk about liquidity requirements as being necessary, and that seems to make a whole lot of sense on the surface because you have to have a bunch of liquid assets if there's stress. But what happens when there's stress? They become less liquid. So again, you know maybe that also has something to do with that that flatter, simpler system, and we're going to have like a more diverse sort of liquidity pool. Um, so, I mean, is that, do, do, do we need to be giving more consideration to the way we're doing the liquidity stuff too? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, I think, I think sort of as you alluded to, I mean, you know, I think what we've seen when banks get into stress is the, you know, I mean, there are, a variety of things banks can try to do to, to deal with stress, but especially when it's a when it's a real liquidity issue, sort of like we saw with you know SVB, First Republic, Signature, you know what those banks generally do is they go first to the Federal Home Loan Banks and then to the Fed, um, and what you know what is less likely to happen is the banks to be fire selling their their assets, um, and so you know as as we at the FDIC have been looking at institutions who are who are under pressure and trying to think of what is their capacity to withstand a liquidity event if it occurs at that bank, you know the main things that we're looking at is how much cash do they have and what's their what's their borrowing capacity. Um, and so, you know, trying to work those things into liquidity rules is a is a challenging things to do is a challenging thing to do. Mm -hmm. And I know, you know, sort of as I alluded to, there's there's been proposals of ways to try to do those sorts of things. Um, but, it, you know, it, it seems to me that if we're going to reopen the liquidity rules, we should be thinking about those types of things rather than just look in a very narrow way at what did uninsured deposits do and, right. you know, what happened with, with held to maturity securities. Sure, sure. No, that makes sense. I think I always sort of thought about the liquidity problem as sort of a reserve problem too, because you have reserve requirements. Well, we don't right. necessarily. I mean, it's, they're, they're very similar. Yeah. 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 Uh, and you have to have them 
and then when you need them, you can't use them because if right. you use them, you don't have them. Right. So. Right. Yeah, the last taxi problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, so I think I think that that also makes a lot of sense, you know, for the agencies to start really looking at how we would do that and how they interact with the the federal home loan banks and the Fed's supposed to be the lender of last resort and what's really going on, especially with the discount window. Um, I think you mentioned it was one of the banks had collateral prepositioned, but it, that was that was shoved out. Like they couldn't, they didn't have, they lost access. So First Republic lost First, access okay. to primary credit at the end. Okay, and so they got they got pushed from primary credit to secondary credit. Okay, and so basically, when you move from primary to secondary, the you know the value, the amount you can borrow declines, and First Republic basically at that point needed you know it basically had maxed out and needed all the liquidity it had. So once it got downgraded, in effect, that, that forced the bank to fail because, you know, but I mean, they were obviously, I mean, they were, you know, in, in quite troubled condition, mm -hmm. independent of that, but. Mm -hmm. But it's a, but that's a part of how we're regulating the banks. Sure. So that's obviously should be considered as, as we're doing that. Right. Okay. Um, all right, so I want now, now I'll go back to the, the audience question that I wanted to get to. Uh, one of our uh, questions that we received was, a, was regarding market forces and how to get mar more market forces into the banking sector. And I think, you know, based on your remarks, I mean, I don't think that's something that you would disagree with in terms of the need for that, right? I mean, that's... No, I mean, I agree. I mean, you know, so I think generally the, you know, the stakeholders who play sort of that market discipline role tends to be the equity owners of the bank and to some extent unsecured creditors to the extent that banks, you know, either either you issue bonds or have other, you know, other sort of unsecured borrowing arrangements. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, I think to some extent banks are banks play a, are a little bit unique in that the, you know, sort of, as we said before, you know, the consequences of of bank failures or bad news getting out about banks can be a lot more damaging than in other in other industries and so that's partly why we have you know we have this bank regulatory you know i don't know bank regulator set up to mm -hmm. um you know to examine banks and inspect banks books and records and so you know so on the one hand the you know part of the benefit that bank regulators provide that market forces cannot is they can go in and see all the non-public things which which markets might not know about but on the flip side there are lots of ways that markets can be more you know that market forces have advantages that regulators don't which is you know you have sort of like the wisdom of crowds you have skin in the game for right. people who have money on the line um and you know not not to say this happens at the FDIC, but, you know, you can have regulatory capture sometimes, you know, so, and there are lots of ways that regulators can miss things. And so I think having, you know, having a system where we have regulators that are going in and, you know, again, inspecting the things that are going on behind the scenes, while at the same time you have, you have market forces also, I think it's, you know, I think it's a, a helpful way to do things. And, and I think part of the market forces for me too is competition. Um, and I know people will disagree about how competitive the financial sector is or the banking sector is, but um, I mean that's and that that gets into the merger policy as well. You know, um, is, do you think that the do, I mean generally speaking, do you think the agencies have a healthy sort of view of 
market forces through competition and or or is there maybe some maybe there are some things that we have we as as consumers should fear about the way the agencies are viewing merger policy right now yeah i mean you know so it's still you know i mean the, the agencies still haven't put out any proposals yet so you know so and i think there are probably a lot of different people within the agencies who have who have different views um but at least when i look at things i mean i think that i mean i think that the banking industry in general and financial services in general is is extremely competitive um and it and especially if you compare if you compare now to the way banking generally worked historically so on the one hand we have we have much less total number of banks today than we used to but you know 50 years ago it was you know as a customer the options that you had in terms of banking services were were extremely small because banks were very limited in their ability to you know to branch in different areas and to operate in different states and things like that whereas now you know if you want to open up a deposit account or if you want a loan, you can go on the internet right. and you can have tons of options at your fingertips. You know, 50 years ago, like a big way banks competed was convenience. You know, it's like who can, you know, who gets the, the prime real estate? Branch. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, at the time there were, you know, there were interest rate restrictions. So it was much harder to compete on, you know, on pricing of deposits and, mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, so again, you know, I, I think a lot of, you know, there's a lot of talk about wanting more competition in banking, but, you know, but it generally feels like we already have a very competitive financial services industry. Um, yeah, and, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, I think my, my fear is that the, the competition would be viewed as a bad thing from the agency level, and um, I, th I know a lot of people are worried about that, but that's... Um, I've just, but that's not necessarily a bad thing that we have that, and we have those market forces right. getting in there that way. So that's options aside. Right. Um, so I have some more. I'm just going to keep going with our audience questions too. Sure. Um, we got a bunch of questions, and I kind of put them all together here on the FDIC proposal report on deposit insurance reforms. Uh, so I just wanted to just see if you have you know any thoughts on that proposal. Um, I know. I'm going to preempt you and say I know it's a matter of Congress's sure, decision, sure. but um, but but still, if you could just maybe share, you know, what you think on some of those options. Sure, and I'll maybe preface this also by saying, you know, that report was prepared by the staff at the direction of the chairman, so you know, I didn't I didn't really have a you know I was briefed on it and talked to the people about it, but I wasn't involved in any of the writing of the report or you know it wasn't like a product of the board or or anything like that. It wasn't your fault. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think, I mean, I think it is a, I think it's a worthwhile conversation to have. Um, you know, I think the, the common theme among the three big banks that failed and a number, perhaps all of the banks that were, that were under stress was they all had high levels of uninsured deposits. Um, and in the aftermath of the Silicon Valley Bank failure, you know, we saw significant movement in uninsured deposits. Um, and when you look at the system, at, you know, when you look system-wide, you know, 30 years ago, we had 20% of deposits were uninsured. And as of a couple years ago, it was approximately 50%. Um, and so, you know, that, that's, a, that's a, pretty, a pretty dramatic change. Um, 
you know, as you said, I mean, ultimately the question of whether deposit insurance should be expanded is a question for Congress. And, you know, there's a complicated set of trade-offs to, to weigh. Um, you know, on the one hand, more deposit insurance, at least in my mind, tends to result in more stable funding for banks um, because you have less depositors with, with risk of loss. Um, but there are costs and downsides associated with that. And at least the way our, you know, the way our diff funding works now is, you know, we have a risk-based assessment for determining how much banks pay, but our reserve ratio is calculated as a percentage of insured deposits, which means if you raise the insured, the number of insured deposits, then by definition, the amount of revenue you need to collect from banks goes up. And so, you know, part of this question is sort of a, you know, how much do we as a society want to pay for more deposit insurance? in terms of, you know, taking money or funds out of the out of the banking sector and, you know, sort of parking it someplace that's less productive. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the report itself, you know, I thought that the I thought that the proposal that they made around expanded coverage for business operational accounts, I thought that was a, a thoughtful a thoughtful proposal. And, you know, I think sort of regardless of kind of where you think the um, you know the right num- the right amount of insured versus uninsured i think the concept of having expanded coverage for you know for those types of business accounts i think there's a there's a public policy you know there's a public policy benefit to to giving that consideration um, which is that you know when those types of deposits bear losses there are potentially cascading impacts you know, if it causes companies to go bankrupt and then a bunch of people to lose their jobs and potentially then other, you know, um, whereas, you know, just sort of like a flat raising of the threshold, you know, then you're expanding coverage for a lot of individual people who maybe are just, you know, essentially treating their deposits as investments. Um, So I thought that part of the report was was thoughtful and and thought provoking. Um, The part of the report that I that I didn't really like was the notion that if you make changes to the deposit insurance framework, you then need to also have more rules and scrutiny of banks, because it feels to me like the FDIC is simultaneously taking both sides of that, where through the supervisory process right now, we're basically moving in the direction of more scrutiny for banks that have more uninsured deposits. But then we also are putting out a report that says, if banks have more insured deposits, they need more scrutiny. Right. And so at some point, you have to, like, net those things out and, yeah. you know, make up your mind. Um, so to, in my mind, I think it would be, you know, I don't think that those conversations should be merged. Like, the deposit insurance question should be its own question, and the rules and regulation question should be its own question. And, you know, I generally think it's sort of unhelpful to try and combine those two. Put it all together. Yeah. No, that, valid, valid. Um, I have time. We have time for one more quick question, um, and this one I'm just going to kind of summarize. But basically, we had somebody submit one that says, "Okay, look, there are more financial regulators in the U.S. than any other developed country. Uh, what are your thoughts on consolidating some of these, maybe merging CFTC into SEC, FDIC, OCC, that sort of thing?" Obviously, that's a decision for Congress right. too. But right. um, yeah, you know, I think that's a I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, clearly, if anybody was setting up our system from scratch, nobody <laughs> would set it up this way. Right. Um, you know, I think there are I think there are some benefits to having multiple different agencies. 
Um, you know, right now we have different agencies that kind of bring different perspectives. And so when we do things on an interagency basis, sometimes it's helpful to sort of like have that back and forth and sort of force that compromise. Um, but I don't know if those benefits are worth the um, added frictions and bureaucracy. And, you know, there's just so much time that's spent in that sort of like interagency, inter interagency decision-making process. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's, I think it's certainly something that's worth considering. Um, you know, I know that, uh, you know, there've been several proposals that various treasury departments have done in different administrations. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that obviously the SEC CFTC gets proposed a lot. Yeah. You know, I remember, I think it was the, the Bush treasury had their proposal where they would have like a conduct regulator. So it would yep. be not only SEC and CFTC, but also what we now Called the CFPB would also sort of be part of that, um, and you know, and when it comes to prudential prudential regulations, you know, we have we have the three banking agencies, and then we also have NCUA, FHFA, yep. and so you know, I think there's yeah. probably some questions of like, do you really need all of those different yeah. prudential authorities? And, and, and even Dodd Frank before we had Dodd Frank, and I'm going to shut up, but even before Dodd Frank, there, a lot of people don't recognize that there was actually a proposal on the table to do one banking regulator and merge them all together, but. And Fed killed it. Um, yep. <laughs> Shocker how that, that's even a thing, right? No, but, um, <laughs> so we are, we are out of time, and I want to thank you all for joining us. And, Travis, thank you very much uh, for coming here today and talking to us. Sure. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Thanks for having me.